0: WDBM East Lansing.
1: Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou
0: and Daniel Puentes.
1: What makes languages different isn't words or grammar. It's differences in cultural heritage that decide if two languages are the same or different. Today we're talking to Chad Hall about his research in linguistics, Chad is actually the first student we've had from the MSU Linguistics Department, and we're very happy to have him here. Chad, may you please introduce yourself and your research for us?
2: Hi there. Yeah, my name is Chad Hall. I'm in the Linguistics Department. I'm a PhD candidate. And so I'm currently working on my dissertation, which is exploring if there is a dialect, an accent that has formed in the Lebanese-American community when they speak English in Dearborn, Michigan.
0: Nice to meet you, Chad, and thanks for joining us today. Dialect is a term that people hear all the time, but I'm not really sure if people actually truly understand what it means. Could you explain a little bit about what dialect means in your research?
2: Yeah, a dialect is what we would say in linguistics. It's essentially what you would call a sub-language, so there's languages of the world. And then within the languages, there's dialects. And now people often use in sort of the media and stuff is the word accent. And dialect, it's not too far from that. But what we say a dialect is, it's just a variation of a language where, you know, the sounds might be slightly different. Maybe even the words that are chosen are slightly different. So, for example, do people say soda or pop? If you say one or the other, then you're part of a different dialect group. And then there's also sort of grammar that's slightly different depending on what dialect you speak, where you're from. And so all of those little bits and pieces, the sounds, the grammar, the words that you use, they all form part of the dialect, which is like a sub-language, basically.
1: Your research really resonates with me, Chad. Danny and I actually started the Sci-Files because we wanted to get better at our public speaking, but also give students the opportunity to talk about their research. Something I was really insecure about was the fact that I have an accent or I use the dialect of the Caribbean because my parents are from Trinidad and Tobago. So whenever we moved over here to Michigan, I felt like I really stuck out and that people weren't always understanding what I was saying. I would be told that I wasn't saying something properly or that I wasn't enunciating my words well. You had mentioned that you're specifically investigating Lebanese Americans in Dearborn, Michigan. Why are you specifically focusing on Lebanese-Americans, and why in that particular location?
2: Well, first of all, I am from London, UK, and it's a city of immense diversity. I myself am the product of multiculturalism. On my mum's side, we have uh, Burmese heritage. And so, I've always been interested in looking at communities where there's a very strong community with very strong inter-ethnic ties. And I've always, even before I moved here, I was aware of Dearborn's Arabic heritage. And being a linguistics student, I realized that not a lot of research has been done in this area, and not a lot of research in linguistics has been done on Arabic talking English. And it's such a unique community in the the strength of their community that I just had to jump in and I had to find out more about this community and if there is, in fact, a crystallized dialect that has formed there. I believe there is. I have hypothesized that there is. I've done a pilot study, which seems to suggest that there is, but I'm diving in there now to find out for sure that there is one. So... I chose Dearborn, Michigan because, one, I actually don't live that far away. I've been living off campus since I moved here about four years ago. I lived recently in Livonia and I've moved to Novi. So for one thing, there was convenience. But second of all, Dearborn is the Arabic hub of America. It has the highest percentage or highest concentration of Arabic-American speakers in America. So that's why I, I picked Dearborn.
0: You bring up a really good point. I didn't realize that Dearborn was actually the hub of Arabic language in America. But in Michigan, it's ranked number three as the most common language that's spoken in the state. So that makes a lot of sense when you put two and two together. Thanks for making that connection for us. In this linguistics project, how are you performing the research? And how are you collecting your data to understand the Lebanese-American dialect?
2: Well, as you are aware, I'm sure... Currently, with the COVID pandemic, it's not as easy to collect data. It would have been much easier to be in Dearborn with the speaker collecting data, but this isn't the case now. I've had to make some adaptations to how I would collect data. But essentially, what I'm doing is, from a remote location, I am performing a series of tasks for these speakers to do. The first one is, I interview them, and there's no real structure to the interview because all we're interested in as linguists is just hearing how these speakers talk. So that's one part of it. The second part is getting them to read a story and getting them to read a word list. These reading tasks are designed in a way that they would elicit the kind of words that I would want to hear them speak, because I have some hypotheses about certain sounds and certain words that will sound different from an Arabic-American English speaker. And then, what I'm also doing is getting two Arabic-American speakers to do a spot-the-difference task together, the reason I'm doing this is because I want to see how two Arabic American English speakers talk to each other rather than talking to me, essentially an outsider. And then lastly, I'm doing a child directed speech task where basically a speaker is then interacting with their child and doing a task with them, making a story up for their child to see how they speak to their children as well. So there's different bits of data being collected, but those are the tasks that I have the speakers do.
1: I like that you also consider how it is whenever they speak to one another because whenever I'm talking to my parents, I will sound different than how I sound right now. Also, I'll sound different whenever I'm in Miami because I have a different dialect whenever I'm back at home. After these interviews, are you analyzing their audio in a certain way and are you looking for something specifically?
2: Yeah, specifically what I should give as some background is that there are different areas of linguistics. Linguistics is a very broad topic So there are people who are more interested in looking at, let's say, grammar, you know, how words are put together. There are other people who are interested in looking at how the brain processes language, for example. My particular specialty is in speech acoustics. And this is an area that you call phonetics. And some people also call it phonology. And being a phonetician, I'm interested in particular sounds that are produced differently, in my hypothesis, by Lebanese-American English speakers. So I'm looking at four particular sounds that I believe sound different to um, Lebanese-American English speakers, those being the T and D sounds, the sound, which is kind of like what you'd spell with TH a lot of the time, and the O vowel, as in the vowel in home. For example, those four sounds are the ones I'm looking at. Those four sounds I hypothesized are produced differently by the speech community. And so what I'm doing is once the data is collected, I will be kind of cutting out all the instances of T's and D's and the's and O's and analyzing them and doing a series of acoustic analyses to determine are these sounds markedly different from, let's say, um, an Anglo-English white Michigan speaker. And it's interesting as well that you bring up how having a Trinidad and Tobago-influenced American accent, that you were perceived as not enunciating your words properly. This is interesting because in the class that I used to teach here at MSU, we would talk about perception uh, of accents and how people discriminate people based on accents. And what I teach my students is that there is nothing inherently wrong about an accent. For example, say that someone from the South might sound lazy or they might sound like they're uneducated or that they don't enunciate their words properly. They're not saying that the language itself that they're using is bad. They're actually making a judgment about the person and then attributing it to their language use because it's a way for them to hide their prejudice more easily. So when people say Southern people sound lazy, or maybe British people sound really well-spoken, whether it's positive or negative, they're not making a judgment about the language, they're making a judgment about the person.
1: Yeah, Chad, I really wish a lot of people had the same sentiments as you do. I've been told in academic presentations that I'm supposed to say words in a certain way or that no one will take me seriously or believe that I even know what I'm talking about. Which is why at this point, I've been able to teach myself to talk more like a Michigander, I guess, and be more accepted.
2: That's really interesting that you bring up that point because in linguistics, people who are interested in finding out how language works they're not interested in stuff like that. This is what we call as linguists prescriptivism or prescriptive linguistics. And this is when people use language as a way to control others. So basically, there are rules that are set in place by people about how people should sound, when really as linguists, we only care about how do people sound. So what you might find interesting is that when people say what is the standard American English, what is the kind of American English that people aspire to, you wouldn't be surprised to hear when people say, well, it's how white, middle-class people speak. And that's not because they sound any better, it's because they have the most power, and so how they speak is set as the standard, and anything that's not the standard is apparently wrong. And that is what we call prescriptivism. It's using language to control other people. And as linguists, we're not at all interested in that sort of thing.
0: That's an excellent point. And what that makes me think of a lot of the times actually is how when you think of publishing research articles, 98% of the articles that are published annually are written in English. But that means that people from across the world either have to learn English to be able to have access to that kind of research into the science, or they have to have the research translated, which involves paying someone to translate it. And it adds to a whole nother level of inaccessibility when it comes to trying to understand research. Now, returning back to the interview and your work, whenever you're analyzing the conversations happening between you and a Lebanese American or Lebanese Americans having a conversation by themselves, are there any particular tools or analysis that you're able to use that allows you to pinpoint where that difference comes from?
2: Yes, there is. There's actually a very popular program that phoneticians use on their computers. It's called Prat. It's spelled P-R-A-A-T, and it's a very easy way for phoneticians to look at a recording and to basically analyze the speech. For example, one of the easier things that I can do is I'm looking at if uh, Lebanese-American speakers pronounce their the sounds more like duh. Now, there's specific acoustic differences between the and duh. I mean, to be honest, it's quite easy to even hear the difference between those two. You can hear the difference between a the and a da, but if you wanted to confirm that, then you can analyze audio, and you can see the acoustic differences between a the and a da sound. For example, a da sound has, if you analyze it, this kind of burst of air followed by the vowel afterwards, whereas a the sound, it's more a, this kind of frication in the waveform. And so that's one particular difference that I can talk about for T's and D's. I hypothesize that Lebanese-American speakers, because of Arabic, which has dental T's and D's, which means they're pronounced more with the teeth, there are very subtle acoustic differences between a dental T and a D and a typical mainstream American T&D sound.
1: It's interesting that you're able to see the differences within these waveforms. Whenever you mentioned a dental t and D, I'm assuming that you're using your teeth to pronounce this, but if I'm wrong, please correct me. That also makes me wonder, whenever you're conducting these interviews, do you record the mouths of these people when they're pronouncing these words to understand how they're pronouncing it?
2: Just to clarify, the T's and D's and the way that people pronounce them does vary from speaker to speaker, but typically, T and D, what we call that in phonetics, we call these alveolar stop consonants. Now, the alveolar ridge is that wrinkly part just behind your teeth on the top, on the roof of your mouth, and that is where your tongue touches to produce a T and D sound. Now, some people might produce it a little bit more forward towards the teeth, some a little bit further back. But in Arabic, those sounds are produced fully with the teeth. Those are what we call dental stops, not alveolar stops. So, basically, my hypothesis is that these dental stops have made it through into the English of these Arabic American English speakers. It's actually very difficult to see how someone is producing a sound in their mouth. So, most of the time, it's difficult to see where the tongue is going, what the tongue is doing inside the mouth. People don't really open their mouth that far, and so it's hard to really judge exactly where a sound is being produced in the mouth, unless they're producing sounds like B and P and F, the ones that are more made with the lips. Anything that's not made with the lips, it's very difficult to make any kind of judgement call just by looking at someone, how they're producing that sound, you have to kind of rely on the acoustics and what you're picking up. There have been experiments where people have actually put something in the mouth that monitors where the tongue goes when it produces certain sounds, so that they can actually see what's happening there. But for my study, that's a little bit too intrusive, and I don't personally want to be doing that.
0: Like you said, though, you're conducting these interviews virtually, so they're being done safely. Highlighting one of the tasks that you had talked about earlier, you said that you were looking at child-directed speech. Are there differences that can be observed in the dialect between adult-adult conversations comparatively to -to adult-to-child conversations?
2: Yes, there are a lot of documented differences between how people speak adult to adult and how people speak adult to child. I'm sure that anyone listening wouldn't be surprised to hear that. This idea that we use linguistics, is this thing called motherese, which is that idea that people, when they speak to children, they sound a lot more animated and their pitch goes more up and down and their sounds are a bit more drawn out so that it kind of draws the child in. But also, I mean, what I'm particularly interested in is the fact that it's been documented that adults speak to children in a more prestigious way, so that they use sounds that are seen as, well, that are seen by society as more respectable sounds, which is very interesting for my research, because even though I have a hypothesis that some sounds sound different, It's also possible that speakers are mixing between sounds that are more Arabic sounding and sounds that are more Anglo-English, white American sounding. And it would be interesting comparing adult-to-adult speech and child-to-adult speech by seeing which sounds are viewed with more prestige in the Arabic-American community. The ones that would be used for a child would be assumed to be the ones that are seen as more prestigious and respectable in the community. So that's the extra interesting thing I'm hoping to find out in this research.
1: I completely understand where you're coming from because I used to work in an elementary school, and whenever I used to talk to children, I think I was more animated than how whenever I talked to adults because I'm trying to keep their attention and I'm also trying to keep them interested in what I'm talking about. However, I haven't really heard someone mention respectable sounds before, though I have a feeling that I know what it's like. So I'll use a personal example. Whenever my family is speaking from Trinidad and Tobago, instead of saying the, they'll say D. I'm wondering what constitutes as a respectable sound, and whenever these interviewees are reading these stories or these word lists, are these respectable sounds in those examples?
2: So a... Respectable or prestigious sound isn't defined by linguists themselves. It's defined by society and defined by the community. So, a linguist's job is to deduce what society deems as a respectable or more prestigious sound compared to another. There's nothing inherently good or bad about language use or about particular sounds it's usually, what is seen as a respectable sound is whatever society determines as respectable sound, but there's nothing inherently good or bad about language use, so that's what I meant by investigating prestige and investigating respectable sounds. For example, giving your example of the the versus the duh, looking at those two, let's say those are the two options that a speaker can use, Which one is seen as the prestigious one, and which one is seen as the respectable one? Well, that's for linguists to find out. So, in the word list and in the reading stories, I'm looking at words that contain not respectable sounds, but the sounds that I am interested in, them being the T, the D, the the, the O vowel. And by analyzing speech across interview and speech in a word list, people tend to speak in a more careful, more respectable, more prestigious way when they're reading a list of words compared to when they're being interviewed. If they, for example, choose to use a the consonant more in the interview, and then they put the more into their word list, Then the idea is that they probably think that the duh is a more respectable sound because they're using it while they're reading out a list of words rather than in a more casual interview context.
0: It's really interesting that you're able to actually identify where these kinds of language dialects are coming into play whenever the people are reading their stories for you. In the spot the difference task, could you elaborate a little bit more on what that means? Are the participants listening to other people speak in Arabic, or are you listening to people speak in Arabic, and then you're trying to spot the difference?
2: So the spot the difference task is not anything to do with them listening and spotting the difference between sounds. What I mean by a spot the difference task is literally a spot the difference task. You know, when someone is looking at the difference between two pictures and they have to spot the differences, that is literally what they are going to be doing in this task. Now, the reason that it is a spot the difference task is because I am currently working on creating a pair of drawings and they'll be very similar, but they will have subtle differences. And those subtle differences are going to relate to the sounds that I want them to say. So let's say, for example, I want them to make a T sound, then perhaps if someone was holding a cup of tea, I would colour the cup of tea in a different colour in one picture compared to another. Now, the other reason that I'm doing a spot the difference task is because I can get two speakers to look at two drawings. I'm not letting one speaker see the other speaker's drawing. And what that's going to force them to do is to explain what they can see in greater detail to the other speaker. So they're painting a picture for the other speaker, and now that other speaker is going to have to work out what the differences are, even though they can't see the other person's picture. So it it just encourages a more detailed explanation of what they're looking at, and it hopefully is going to be encouraging more casual speech because they're going to get more lost in the task. And they're going to just be speaking more and more naturally as they go through the task and they are absorbed in this task that they're doing, not even paying attention to
1: how they're speaking. I didn't realize that these were also just conversations that were taking place freely. I was under the impression that they were reading stories or specific words from a list. Whenever they're talking to each other, are they just talking freely or do you give them a specific topic to talk about?
2: This is one of the big issues that anyone doing linguistic fieldwork faces. It's something that we call the observer's paradox. And that is when you want to collect language data, linguists are interested in collecting language data when someone is speaking casually because we're interested in observing language how it is. The more formal that we make the task, the more conscious someone is of how they are sounding. So we don't want that much formalness in the task. What the aim of the Spot the Difference task is, is that it should hopefully elicit casual conversation between two Lebanese-American speakers. But what is clever about these drawings is that the drawings are designed in a way that will elicit the words and the sounds that I want to hear without them even knowing that those are the sounds that I want them to produce. And so that's a clever way of controlling without making it appear as though you are controlling.
0: Well, that sounds like it must be a lot of audio that you have to listen to whenever you're analyzing this information, Chad. When it comes to the program, does the program specifically do the filtering for you or do you have to go in and manually listen to every second of these interviews to be able to try and pick out and spot the difference as you pointed out earlier?
2: This is something that I am currently trying to work out because, as you say, yes, if I am going through all of this data and I am chopping out all the T's and D's and Th's and O's out of the recordings, it will take a long time, not to mention doing the analysis on those sounds. So there is scripts that you can run on Pratt that will help to make the task slightly easier. So if you can take the data and perhaps transcribe the audio, so you just sort of write in the words to go with the recording, so you're kind of almost doing captioning, then there is a script that can go in there using the way that you've captioned it and then take out the T's, the D's, the V's, and the O's, and that would take out a fair amount of the effort. But even regardless of that, it is still very time consuming.
1: Well, at least you have a program to help you with all of this. Before we go, I was wondering, what is the implications of your research and what are your goals with it after you've analyzed your data?
2: What I hope comes out of this research is that there is a lot of linguistics research on what you call ethnic varieties or ethnolet. So, for example, African-American vernacular English is a very well-documented ethnic variety. Latinx English as well is highly documented ethnic variety in the United States. And the Arabic community, in my opinion, has been very neglected, despite the fact that there are half a million, for example, Arabic Americans in Dearborn, and there's millions more in the United States. So it is an undocumented ethnic dialect that I'm looking at. And I hope that it will bring more coverage of this community into linguistic research. And because this is a community that is highly unique in its inter-ethnic ties and its heritage in Dearborn for well over a hundred years now, I expect to find some very interesting and unique findings that could make this particular dialect a standout in the field of what we call ethno-linguistic variation. And so I hope that this research gives more coverage to this community, and then hopefully it's a dialect that I would like to explore further beyond the dissertation, and what I would hope as well is that other researchers are intrigued by this community and find out more about this undocumented, underrepresented speech community.
0: I think that this research is going to be really important when it comes to getting rid of the biases that exist whenever people are hearing each other talk, and not only just in the Lebanese-American dialect, but in other dialects as well. From an inclusive standpoint, thanks so much, Chad, for joining us today to talk about this work. It's really easy to see just how impactful it's going to be whenever the results come in and you're able to publish on it. And thanks again for explaining it to us and the audience. No
2: worries. It was a pleasure to be here. And I'm glad that my research can get more coverage and that the public can hear more about it. So thank you for having me on the show.
1: Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org.
0: If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files. And remember, the truth is in the science.